1: For more information, visit surreyfarms.com.
0: This is Michael Harlan Turkell, host of The Food Scene. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
2: Hello and welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on the Heritage Radio Network with Nastasha the Hammer, Lopez, and Jack Ainsley in the engineering booth.
1: How you doing, guys? Good. Ooh, how'd you have that much breath in you after riding your bike here?
2: I don't know. You know what? Uh, well, before I get into the bike, uh, call in your questions to 718 2128 That's 718-497-2128. And now back to your question, Jack. You know you know that everyone who bikes in this neighborhood, they know that there's a – like a block and a half from here is a giant cement factory. You know this, Jack? The giant cement. Yep. And <clears throat> something I – I hate driving past it because whenever I drive past it, like even though I'm breathing through my nose, like you know, I'm inhaling concrete dust. And it always – like I'm fine all the way here, up and down the bridge. I could get off and do the radio show at a minute's notice. Bike past that concrete factory – and It's like all of a sudden my mouth is totally shafted. They're just spraying Portland cement dust into the atmosphere at a ferocious rate. But I realized something else. You know, uh, you know, for those of you that are fans of Neil Diamond, you know the Brooklyn Roads song we mentioned on the show before. Brooklyn Roads. Anyway, you know that you know the song, right, Stas? Neil Diamond. I thought
1: it was. Yeah.
2: Okay. Jack, you know, you're a Neil Diamond I'm fan. Not a Neil Diamond. The hell's wrong? Sorry, huh? sorry. It's not Brooklyn Roads. Brooklyn Roads. Brooklyn Roads. Mm. You're thinking of. uh, yeah. uh LA's fine mm-hmm. some of the time. Yeah, yeah, I went, yeah, yeah. no, this is Brooklyn Roads. It's an entirely different song, not as popular. <clears throat> but uh, so I always thought it was laughable because we would ride, but Stas won't ride her bike here anymore because she took a, a tumble on Bushwick Avenue once. And Bushwick Avenue, and I've mentioned this before, is like kind of like a slalom course. But then, like, it's like, like seriously, it's like, it's, a, it's totally like mogled out, it, potholed out, mogled out. And then there's giant blobs of concrete just on, in the middle of the bike lane, right? Yeah. And then uh, like a month and a half ago, Jack, I don't know if you were biking around here. You bike, right? I, um, I have a car. Yeah, I know, so do I, but I bike. Whatever, anyway. I'm I have get to anyway. move
1: it every morning for alternate side parking anyway. Oh, so,
2: I know. All right. Yep. So anyways. Very so, green. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, is it a partial zero emissions vehicle? <laughs> it's not at all. No, have you heard of this partial zero emissions vehicle? What it's not that? zero emissions. My uh, my Subaru is it says P I uh, see partial P Z E V partial zero emissions vehicle. Hey, listen, people! Every car is zero emissions when you have it turned off. What the hell is a partial zero? Partial zero. Smart. You know I'm part. You know what, does that make any sense? Does that make any sense to you at all? No, no, no. Partial, partial, my butt. Anyways, so <clears throat> about a month ago, maybe you did notice this, even though you were on a car. Maybe two months ago now, they totally repaved the stretch of of uh, Bushwick that's near us. It was like totally sweet, new blacktop, no potholes, no life-ending potholes, no nothing. And I was like, man, all right, I'm going to stop making fun of Brooklyn Roads. And then like the next week, the big turds, like like coprolite dinosaur turd fossilized chunks of concrete on the thing. And I realized it was those damn cement trucks had extra cement in those freaking chutes. The freaking chutes are pointed to the freaking right right, uh, you know, so that they're not pointed into the center of traffic, they're on the right, and they're blopping concrete right into the freaking bike lane, and that's why there's always blobs of concrete in the freaking bike lane around here. Someone needs, to, someone needs to teach those weasels a lesson. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Jack doesn't care. He's driving next to it with his car, laughing at the people <laughs> flying over their handlebars next to him. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even door them, and here they are over their handlebars. Wah, wah.
1: I've never doored anybody
2: it's never too late jack it's never too late to door someone i've thankfully never is that true no i did stop, i did pull an abrupt ue stopped and the guy hit me so that's that's adoring that's i consider that adoring yeah. i did door this poor son of a it was a long time ago though i was much younger and i've been doored so it's like i guess i paid it forward uh you <clears throat> know kind of reverse pay forward steal forward what is it i don't know uh good day Nastasha, dave and jack greetings from france I uh, hope you, uh, me, that is, enjoyed my stay in Paris a few weeks back and you had the opportunity to visit a few of the places I had recommended in a previous email. I didn't get a chance to go to too many food things because I was with uh, Dax, who doesn't really care much. Although he's now a crepe fan. Do you know that stuff? No. He loves crepes. You know, I had that crepe maker for years. He never asked for crepes. And now he's like, crepes, 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 jelly. We couldn't get him interested in crepe salée with, you know, the ham and the cheese in it. You like that crap, right? Mm-hmm. Especially, you're a Gruyere fan, right?
0: Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
2: Nastasha's a fondue fondue fiend. She loves fondue. If if well, it's not going to happen. But like that's like if someone was going to ask the stars out on a date back in the day, and they're like, you know, uh, I know it's cheesy and everything, but you know, you, you, would you want to go to a fondue restaurant? She'd be like, finally, somebody's asking me to a fondue joint. No, there's not like,
1: many fi- fondue places here.
2: There used to be in the '70s when fondue was popular. Back, you know, whatever. was. So that's another thing that Stas likes. You can put that on the list of four things Stas <laughs> likes, fondue. Um, anyway, I went to pierre and May, and uh, I think a couple of the cheese joints, but I didn't get a chance to eat out at any fancy restaurants. who mainly sat outside so that if there was any screaming and wailing, we could just kind of cart ourselves away. Dax is old. He doesn't scream and wail. But, you know, kids, like, they're not, like, always restaurant friendly. Although Dax is Dax is very good. Anyway. Anyway. Um, Back to the question. Uh, imagine I want to add caramel flavor into a sweet recipe. I can imagine that. Can you imagine that? Mm-hmm. Jack, you have, have you, do you have it imagined? I have it. Okay. Uh, could I take the original amount of sugar in the recipe, cook it to a caramel, let it cool, reduce it to a powder, and then follow the recipe instructions? Uh, I'm particularly interested in the effect on structure. For example, sugar gives cookies a nice snap and, uh, and provides structure to egg, white, uh, egg whites and meringues. Would pure caramel work the same? Also, it seems that caramel binds with water differently than sugar does. It becomes sticky after a while. Would a cake or cookie become soggy? In general, would you recommend I cook all the sugar into a caramel or only part of it? And how do the many components of caramel compare to table sugar, uh, i.e. sucrose, for sweetness? Uh, the first try uh, will be a simple caramel-flavored meringue. I'll let you know if it works. Um, okay, so here's the thing, right? So it... When you're taking uh, sugar sucrose, which is you know one uh, glucose and one fructose molecule bound together, and you cook it uh, on its own or with a little bit of water until the water evaporates, until it turns brown uh, and starts uh, breaking down, you get a number of things uh, that happen to it. Uh, well, first is you're literally breaking the sugar apart and changing it into something else. So the darker your caramel is, the more sugar you have uh, broken down. And you know, uh, I don't really understand uh, what all those breakdown components uh, are, but they're certainly not going to be as sweet. So anytime that you caramelize uh, sugar, you are reducing uh, its overall sweetness. However, the other thing that you're doing when when you're doing this is you're also hydrolyzing some of the sugar. Into fructose and uh, glucose. You're breaking, that, uh, you're breaking that, that bond and you're turning it into monosaccharides. Now, the difference is uh, between, uh, between the invert, you're basically adding invert sugar to your recipe. So, if you're taking what is, amounts to pure sucrose, which we know the properties of, you're converting a portion of it into invert sugar, fructose and glucose, and then you're break- further breaking down those uh, inverted sugar portions into non sugar breakdown products. Okay, now, to the extent that you have residual invert sugar in your uh, in your sugar batch, that stuff is much more uh, hygroscopic it's going to pull uh pull up water more so it's going to have the same effect as adding corn syrup to something like a cookie or a cake i e it's going to increase its ability to pull uh, water in, so you probably won't have uh, as much uh, snap there or you'll need to use other things to control uh, the water a- uh, uptake um, now. The other thing I have to say is that if you look online at people that have made uh, caramel powder in the typical way that they do it, is they'll just cook sugar uh, and then they'll uh, pour it into onto a sheet. Uh, the, you know, they'll cook it to a specific brown note. They'll pour it onto a sheet, and remember, the sugar will be re- sweetness will be reduced, and it will probably be more hygroscopic. Uh, and then they pulse it in a Robo-coup, uh until it's a powder. And then you have to use that right away, or it starts sticking up. However, if you look at some of the com- uh, comments on recipes like that on the on the interwebs, because I haven't uh, I haven't really. Uh, I've never had an occasion to to actually do this myself but if you look at a lot of the uh, comments people are like it tasted kind of good but it didn't really add that caramel flavor that I wanted to the recipes I was looking at and then it dawned on me that uh, when you say when one says caramel and since you're in France Maybe you don't have this problem. But if it, in America, when you say caramel to someone, they don't really think caramelized sugar unless they're talking about uh, something on top of a creme brulee. Typically, when an American says caramel, they mean caramel candy, which is kind of like a toffee-like candy that we eat, like Kraft brand caramels. Do you like those, Stas? Because mm-hmm. they're delicious, right? Jack, fan of the caramels? I am. You know what Stas and I actually both like? Uh, And we tried to imitate once. And we... Miserable failure. Remember this? Mm -hmm. So, uh, Getz. It's pronounced Getz, but it's spelled Gertz. G-O-E-T-Z. You know, but but it's pronounced Getz. So, I don't want to hear anyone tell me that I don't know how to pronounce O-E or Ouma. Because it's it's their name and they can pronounce it how they want. And I happen to be pronouncing it correctly. So, suck on that. Uh, But anyway. So, Getz makes, uh, like, my all-time, all-time favorite candy. Like, I can eat... So many of these things And, and Stas the, the miracle thing Is that she also likes them mm-hmm. Which is You know Kind of odd uh, For both of us To like the same thing It's like You know <laughs> I don't know it's, It doesn't happen mm-hmm. uh, So It's called They're called Caramel creams And what they are Is that they're like A caramel They're a caramel uh, Outside ring And a center Like bullseye Of like this Condensed milk Sugar stuff Yeah they're so good <laughs> They're so good Right Jack yeah. They're so freaking good and they're like the size of a, a little bit bigger than a quarter, but smaller than a half dollar. And they're cut, you know, into pieces that are maybe, oh, I don't know, like a quarter inch steak or something like that. God, I could eat a ton of those. They're so mm-hmm. delicious. So Stas and I, we wanted to do it where we, we were going to replace the bullseye with coconut flavor because we thought that would be good. And we were just we sucked at it. Yeah. It was a Great terrible. idea, though. It's good, right? Yeah. yeah that would be good. And we were going to totally redo it and then do a whole bunch of these. And we just never did um, yeah, probably because we're lazy. Lazy? Anyway. So if you're looking to mimic the flavor of caramel, like caramel uh, – and they use – for some reason I believe they use wheat flour in their recipe, which is weird. But if they, they craft caramel, it's not caramelized sugar really that's doing that to you. What you're dealing with there is the browned milk proteins because there is butter and cream typically in – at least in a homemade kind of soft caramel. And the temperatures that you're taking those um, – Those things, too, are more of a a firm ball kind of a stage, so kind of a low on the candy thermometer scale because they're supposed to be soft, right? And so the texture of them is coming a lot from the fat uh, and from the uh, milk protein and the milk protein, you're getting almost like a dulce, dulce de leche kind of a, a flavor but mixed with a, a, high, a high proportion of sugar into a stiffer thing. So that's where a lot of people – when a lot of people say caramel flavor, they're associating it more with a browned milk, butter, and a small amount of sugar caramelization like you would get in the dulce de leche. Uh, and so if you're looking to imitate something like that, what you need to do is uh, powderize – Caramel and to do that you'd probably need to use something that it would absorb some of that butter fat so that you could incorporate it as a solid powder, and for that, you could use something like ensorbit brand tapioca maltodextrin, but you wouldn 't want to let this stuff get totally uh, solidified in, until you 're done. I think there's some people online who have, who have done it um, hopefully with with some success so uh, I, I would do it uh, that way, but i would i don 't know I would, I would experiment another way is you could probably um, I mean, it'd be difficult to get the milk. Do they? Do they make a, They don't make a browned milk powder that I know. Anyway, but I would try. I would try doing that. So the question is: Are you trying to get the flavor of caramelized sugar, or are you trying to get the flavor of caramels? Uh, and your second question was: uh, uh, I got a caller here. If you oh, want to yeah? jump into that first. All right, call, caller, you are on the air.
3: How you doing? I'm
2: doing all right. How you doing?
3: Good. It's Antoine Cotton from Boca Raton, Florida.
2: Nice. How's it going? How's it down Good. there? Is it is it hot as hell?
3: Always, man. Yeah. And humid? Always humid. I always align with you on how gross it is on here, but what can you do to
2: <laughs> Well, luckily for you, it's pretty gross up here today, too. At least, uh, if, it probably wasn't that bad, but the bike over in Brooklyn. No anyway, so uh, go ahead. You had a question.
3: Yeah. Um, basically, I've always wanted to get your idea and thoughts on um, just health and nutrition more than anything else. Like, I like to eat, but I'm not so fond of working it off or... I want to know what sort of things you uh, believe as far as, like, health claims as to whether to reduce uh, any, any of the claims, whether it's reducing complex carbohydrates or sugars. Um, what things do you believe in as far as keeping a good, balanced health? I mean, I like to eat a little bit of everything, you know, but some things obviously taste better than others.
2: Right. Uh, I, don't, uh, I don't believe in any, any really uh, health claims. I mean... Um To be honest, I sometimes believe that specific things uh, that have, you know, good studies in them actually cause harm. You know, like I do kind of believe that if you consume large amounts of coffee grounds that you'll – it's possible that your cholesterol might spike because I believe they've done studies on that, you know, controlled kind of studies on it. But most of the nutritional uh, guidelines are uh, problematic. I think people are getting better at it over the years, you know, <clears throat> you know, better now than they were, let's say, 10, 20 years ago. But if you were to go back and follow uh, – strictly follow the kind of theoretical underpinnings of nutritional science from 15 years ago, you would be almost completely at odds with what the uh, – with what people are saying uh, now o- other than the strict adherence, you know, to variety and moderation, which, you know, hasn't changed, right? Eating a reasonable amount of food in wide variety has not changed, you know, ever really. Uh, and, and, but like all of the specific things, like it's, it's, Fat, fat is your enemy. Twenty years ago, it was fat was your enemy, right? And then it's oh, car, you know, carbohydrates are your are your enemy, and you can eat as much fat and protein as you want. And then it shifts around to well, now it's a specific kind of carbohydrate, or now it's a specific kind of fat. And while you know, it, for instance, it may be true that trans fats specifically are are, are bad. Most people now don't believe that um, fats are bad. Now the. The problem here, so you know, everyone on their sugar on their sugar cakes not all, all so the problem here is that it 's very hard because if you just you can 't just throw away everything that people tell you uh, from a nutrition standpoint because you 're still falling back i think onto kind of a poisoned mindset for what uh, you know proper uh, proper nutrition is i think, and you know I actually wrote something we didn 't submit it yet because someone thought it was too preachy. But maybe we'll submit it uh, to Eater, where it's like you know. I think the the main point is that we have a poisoned relationship towards our food in general here in the U.S. And I think it um, it alters um, it alters our consumption patterns. Our 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 ideas towards food alter our consumption patterns. So instead of instead of like over the course of uh, you know a month or a year or two years, kind of trying to reset like what we think is. Uh, sating and good and delicious. So, you know, uh, we, we try to take moral attitudes towards our food, like our, this food is good, this food is bad, this food is junk, this food is healthy. And the healthy food, we kind of crave to eat it for moral reasons, but in general, things that are cooked specifically to be healthy tend to suck and not be as sating. So we eat more of it and then we cheat and we eat things that we think are junk because we crave them. And this whole sort of poisoned attitude. Towards food, along with a healthy, healthy dose of kind of the magic bullet thinking that we get from, um, you know, quack doctors like Dr. Oz, who tell you that this or that raspberry ketone or this or that, uh, you know, X Y or Z micronutrient from somewhere in South America is going to save us all from the fact that we haven't controlled or had good thoughts about our diet in, you know, basically our whole lives. And so this kind of thinking of how we're going to get around the problems we have, I think, is a lot of the problem that we have. So. You know, in general, like if you were to say, "Okay, I'm not going to limit what I'm going to eat, and I'm going to go out and I'm going to eat whatever I want just because it tastes good," uh, the problem is, is that when you first start doing that, you're going to gravitate towards the stuff that you've been denying yourself, and you're going to overeat, binge on it, and so yeah, it's going to be unhealthy after a while. So I don't know. The question: How do we, how do we get ourselves back on track where we can say, "Okay, I'm going to cook to make stuff taste good, and then I'm just not going to eat so freaking much of it." You know, and I think that's really kind of the the, the way to go to it I mean uh, to me, like the classic snack wells problem is, is that someone's like well i 'm buying these snack wells and they 're healthy, but you know i, I can 't just eat one or two of them and you know because a i can 't just eat one or two of them because i 'm not sated, and b somehow I think they're healthier for me, so I can pound the hell out of them. you know what i mean it's just, it's just a poison relationship, and so Rather than think about the particular health or nutrient basis, especially the nutrient basis, I think you know, we're so – we have so much overnutrition, nine-tenths of us in this country – not nine-tenths, but like those of us with money have so much of an o- overnutrition problem that, um, you know, that to worry about whether you're getting this much vitamin C or this much whatever, I mean it really just doesn't come up. I mean most of us aren't deficient in anything. I'm deficient in vitamin D because I avoid the sun as though I was a, a vampire but – uh, you know i 'm kind of odd that way so it 's i don 't know if this' is making any sense, but I mean really, what I think you know we should now I think it can be difficult so for instance, if you go to a supermarket. And you and you happen to live in a supermarket that is live near a supermarket that's in kind of a shitty area. It tends to be hard to shop because all the stuff that you know, like when I like you know when you go to like a a really good supermarket or a farmer's market, like you see things that you know the average uh, the average health jackwad would say is healthy. And you're like, damn, that looks delicious. That's a delicious looking tomato. That's a delicious looking X, Y, and Z. And that stuff just doesn't look so delicious or satisfying at a crappy supermarket. And so you tend to gravitate towards the stuff that's. you know, shelf-stable and, and and just bad quality. And so that you end up eating, you know, a lot of that, and I think that throws uh, things off. So it's, it's a complicated problem, uh, and I guess my feelings on it are rather complicated.
3: No, it was funny because uh, I used to work at a raw juice bar, and um, right during that time that I was working there, I was listening to your whole segment on the uh, raw foods, and obviously I, I enjoy cooked food, but, you know, I had to make a living. And as I did that, I started turning on them a little bit. <laughs> like I was listening to certain things, I was like, "You yeah, guys are full of it a little bit." Plus, we also had five guys in front of us, Hooters, and I started eating there more frequently for whatever reason.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean that makes look. I think that. I, that is a great point, I mean, I love this is this, like we should, Jack we should put that on our uh on our on our whatever you put things on, but the uh
1: <laughs> the thing we put things yeah, on i don't even
2: i don't know what it's called you know somewhere out there, but the you know I think it's really a good point i think and I wrote this in the in the thing that that you know that we may or may not uh, publish it 's like a little five hundred word essay i'm like look don't eat <clears throat> don't and I think I specifically said don 't go eat blended kale blueberries, and spirulina don 't drink that stuff because uh, you think you drank too much last night? You know what I mean. Like drink yeah. it, drink it if you like it, right? B- buy buy stuff that you like, and if you drank too much last night, don't drink as much tomorrow. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like it's yeah. like that's the better solution, you know. Uh, Oh my God! I walked into a juice bar the other day with with you know bartenders by the way I don't know if you know this bartenders love uh these raw juice bars because they're perpetually thinking that they're which they are damaging themselves with their lifestyle i mean let's be honest a lot of these a lot of these folks <laughs> really you know they they live kind of rough lives you know i mean if you look at you know Rock stars, which is a much rougher version. I mean, they they don't age well. You know what I'm saying, Keith? I mean, coach. in
3: all in all fairness, I actually went from working as a bartender to the raw juice bar. So, wow.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, there you have it. So, so I go to with, with one of my bartenders to uh, Liquiteria, which is a raw juice bar here. And, and uh, this is not really apropos. It's just I thought it was so hilarious. I walk in there, and uh, you know, I'm not going to buy. Uh, I'm not going to buy like a blended. I I like to eat fruit a lot. I could eat as much fruit as in a, as in a smoothie. In fruit form because I'm a weird guy that way. I, you've seen me eat like like three quarts of blueberries in a row, right? It's in solid form. But, but I like blueberries a lot. But anyways, so I go in there and I'm like, uh, do you have any seltzer water? And the guy says – because you know, you know, my bartender friend was having some sort of liquid monstrosity. And I said, um, seltzer. And he goes, no, have you tried coconut water? <laughs> I was like, what the I was like, is your coconut water carbonated? And he goes, no. And I'm like, what the hell? You know, have you tried, you know, have you tried getting, you know, I'd like some seltzer water. Have you tried me punching you in the face? I mean, they're just totally unrelated. I mean, they both happen to be liquids, but, you know, beyond liquid form, I guess he thought I just wanted a non flavored or light liquid. He's like, no, I want a carbonated liquid without sugar in it. Thanks. But uh, anyway, so. Uh, I appreciate the feedback you gave me, and I'm glad I pegged you uh, without knowing so as a former bartender turned juice person turned five guys customer. So I think you're, <laughs> I think you're approaching. I think you're approaching some sort of balance. I think you're like you know you're going through the balance. Uh, you're going through hopefully the sinusoidal waves that like mellow out, and then you you know you get to a point where you just have like a, a steady steady diet of delicious stuff in moderation. Wow! Call it the sine wave diet. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the the, <laughs> the, uh, the damped sine wave, right? It has to go down towards. It has to go down towards a f- the flat value. Oh, right, so. right. Yeah. Yeah. This
1: is like a square wave. Yeah, you don't yes. want it.
2: You don't want. Wait, well, no, you don't want to. You want to be sinusoidal, but you don't want it to like be amplified over time and spool off into into, into trauma at the end. You know, uh, <laughs> you know, then you end up being like a fr- fruitarian. You don't even, which is like, like a, or, or Jane or Jane's. Have you, has anyone ever met a Jane, a true Janist?
1: Yeah, we had one on the on the radio station. He was in a band. Like
2: he's in a band. Yeah. How do you play an instrument that doesn't harm a bug?
1: <laughs> tough.
2: Yeah, I mean, like I I kind of have an appreciation for anyone who's like I don't eat onions because they inflame the passions too much. How, what kind of music do you play if you're a Jane? Like it's, it's like, like world music, I think. But it can't like incite the passions anyway, right? It's all about like ooh, like nothing, right? Did he have the he or she have the 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 bug mask on?
1: No. I don't think it was so extreme, but.
2: Oh, so didn't, sweep, not, didn't sweep the ground uh, ahead of him or her? Not
1: quite. His name is Sunny, Sunny Jane, actually.
2: Yeah. All yeah. right. Sunny Jane?
1: From Red Barat, which is they call themselves party music.
2: I don't think Jane's party. If, if, if you can't eat an onion on a moral basis, I don't think you can party. But we'll look it up. I mean, I'm not a, an expert on jainism by any stretch. But anyway, thank you so much for your call, and uh, keep calling back, especially if you uh, say funny stuff about working at juice bars. <laughs> Things Dave. All right, bye. Uh, Jack, should we go to a commercial break?
1: Yeah, I'm also vitamin uh, D deficient, by the way. Oh, yeah? Yeah, they had to give me, like, prescription, uh, you know, extra strength pills. I called them sun pills. Recently? Um, no, a few years ago.
2: Really? Do you dip yourself in SPF 2 billion? No. See, I, I don't. I don't either. But I like wear hats and like long sleeves. Like, yeah, uh, me too. Yeah, Stas, you you've seen pictures that like my wife has sent uh, uh, of me on the beach in long pants, long shirt, hat, sunglasses. Yeah, that's me too. Yep, vampire coming back with cooking issues.
1: The following program was brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com.
2: Man, I think we're all lucky there's not a barn nearby, because you know that's the, if there's a barn nearby with that music going, it's all over. Right? Right, Jack? Isn't that what we said? It's the, uh, it's the pre, it's the, it's the country music yeah. pre-Lovin' tune? There's like
1: a shed in the back,
2: I don't know. Uh, now you're ruining it for us now we have to like you know everyone needs to chain ourselves down so that we don't all run in the back by the shed it's not a real shed it's a Brooklyn shed yeah yeah it's, yeah it's not, it's, it's, not, not
1: ro- sh- it's not romantic
2: well it is for that is that is that uh, puffy leg bird still there
1: i haven't seen him in a while there
2: was a there was a hipster dove who lived at uh at uh, roberta's and then uh and then we saw another dove there pigeon really not a dove a pigeon anyway I feel like
1: the pigeon mysteriously disappeared right around the same time Indy Jesus. Coincidence?
2: Mm. Wow. You think it just flew off? I don't know. Like a white-winged dove? Um, A second question on Italian meringue. Uh, As the macaron recipe I have calls for it, I'd rather not move around around the syrup. By the way, you know Italian meringue, right? You you whip the egg whites and then you cook the hell out of the the syrup. You pour the syrup in super hot and you whip it into the KitchenAid or whatever you happen to have when the syrup's hot. I'd rather not move around the syrup when it's very hot. Close to 120 on the Celsius. Uh, could I make the syrup first and then let it cool to a more reasonable 60 or 70 C before I pour it into the egg whites? I understand the syrup helps cook the whites, but I was never told the benefit of that. French meringues is made with all the ingredients at room temperature, and Swiss meringues are heated to 50 or 60 C. Many thanks. and Keep up the good work, Stan B. Well, you know, I don't know. I don't know. So there is the cooking, but obviously uh, you know, I don't know what the finished temperature is when it all balances out. The issue is, and I don't know. Again, I don't know because when I've done these uh, recipes before, I've only ever just followed the recipes. But uh, one thing that is true is if you're pouring uh, sugar syrup that's at 120 C into uh, egg whites, you're going to lose a lot more – you're going to lose a lot more uh, moisture from like sudden evaporation into, in, in, as steam into uh, the kitchen and away from your meringues than you would – if you uh, if you didn't. So my guess is that um, my guess is that if you let it cool, you'll have a higher liquid content in your uh, finished meringue than you would, aside from any cooking Let's erase any cooking issues from it, huh. because because uh, you, theoretically you're, you're going to cook these, this meringue anyway. But my guess is that you'd be messing with the water balance. I don't know uh, what the high temperature there is doing to the proteins more or less than than it would at a lower temperature. Let's even say eighty C or something like this, something that's well above the temperature that would set the egg whites. So I don't know, but it could be the water balance might be a problem. I'd appreciate anyone sending in a tweet or a comment who has more experience. Uh, You know, uh, maybe our favorite, uh, uh, you know, macaron uh, blogger, you know who you are. Uh, could write in uh, and tell us uh, what she thinks about it anyway uh, many thanks keep up the good work Stan B we have a question in from Jean-Pierre that I'm going to have to ask for some clarification for next time Uh, my question is that uh, we wrote a blog about tortillas and I want to know why when I cook my white corn to make tortillas they come out brown instead of white or yellow what am I doing wrong I'm using field corn it's not burnt just a brown natural color that's very odd you know, I don't know. Like, why would so? <clears throat> because we got to make sure that you're. I mean, I, I, I need to see it. Like, I need to know exactly what your procedures are and what you're adding, uh, Jean Pierre. Because I, I can't imagine why they would turn brown, brown. I mean, um, maybe you know some coloration on them, but I'm not familiar with any um, corn, corn uh, like pre pre colors or color. Uh, color precursors that are going to go brown uh, under the treatment uh, under nixtamalization but uh, I could be wrong and I've seen and I've done white corn and it comes out pretty white I mean maybe a little bit beige but not brown So, you know, there must be something with uh, the technique that you're doing. So just tell me, like send me uh, an email, uh, you know, for the question and I'll answer it next week with kind of exactly like step by step what you're doing in the recipe so that I can help uh, troubleshoot. Like the more steps, the better because, you know, you'll maybe include the step where it's where I can figure out what's going on. Okay. Uh, Hi, Dave and Nastasha and uh, the gentleman or the gentleman in the booth. Hello. Hello. Uh, I'm wondering if you have any advice on diluting 35% cream with water to make something close to 3.25% milk. I tried it once using a Blendtec HP3A. That's a blender. Uh... Cream and water, and it didn't really taste like milk, and I think the fat did not emulsify. Do you have any advice? I want to do this because I'd rather carry a liter of cream home from a grocery store than four liters of milk. And if it works well, it would be potentially a bit cheaper, too. Michael from Toronto. P.S., thanks for hanging out at, Daish- uh, at Show uh, after uh, Soylent Green. Did we talk about that? I did the – remember that? I did the uh, – yeah. uh, it's made of people. Mm-hmm. Do you know there was someone in the audience who was there who claimed to not know that, that Soylent Green was made of people? beforehand it's PayPal, that's really great did, did you watch the movie mm-hmm. you've seen it mm-hmm. jack you a fan of the the green
1: i haven't seen the movie but i'm familiar with the story
2: it's not a bad movie and it's it's G. robinson's last movie and uh you know and it's got the charlton heston in it and regardless of what you think about prying guns out of his cold dead you know fingers he was a good actor you know what i'm saying Apparently he was kind of a, a sweet dude. I mean, not a not a not a jerk. Is what I hear. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I mean, like it, some some people are complete jerks, and you still like their stuff, right? Like Michael Stipe, jerk, music good. Deal. You, you like REM?
1: No.
2: You don't like REM? Already, yeah, Why? About what about you, Jack? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean they're good. You don't know, like Don't Go Back to Rockville? That's a good tune.
1: It's a little. It's like a. It's like just before my time. You know, I remember losing my religion, liking that song as a kid.
2: Yeah, but I mean, like, a lot of things are before your time, you still like it. Like, Stas pretends to like the Beatles, even though she hates over half of their catalog. I would have guessed
1: you hate the Beatles. Mm -mm.
2: Well, she hates all the songs you like. Oh, right. She's like, like, you know, if there's some sort of song that you like, or that anyone listens to on a regular basis at the Beatles, I I
1: think all their songs are great. I just think that
2: a lot of them are radio-played,
1: and they have so many great songs that the radio chooses the same ones over
2: and over, so I don't feel like listening to those ones anymore. Yeah, hmm. right. it's fair. See, when I you know, as I got older, like I have more tolerance for the songs that were overplayed on the radio as I was oh, a kid. Really? Oh yeah. Like I couldn't when I was, or like overplayed by like the kids in in the in the smoking section. Like I, there was a there was a chunk of time when I couldn't listen to Led Zeppelin because it's all that got played next to me. It was like Led Zeppelin. I'm like I'm done. And then I was like, you know what? Led Zeppelin is. There's a reason why those kids were listening to it so much because. It's great stuff. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You like Led Zeppelin, right? Mm-hmm. Finally something. Ugh. You don't like Led Zeppelin, Jack?
1: I, you Take know, I, f- I, I have a problem with the the not crediting the source material. They, they took a lot of those songs from older blues musicians. and
3: Yeah, you
2: know, but, uh, I mean. They're good. I like the <laughs> records. They're okay musicians. But, I mean, I don't His know. His voice, okay. <laughs> 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 uh, Bonham, yeah, medium drummer, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, plant got some pipes, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh what do, whereas do you like uh do, do you like uh uh what's his name? Steve Miller because he does credit people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, do you do? Yeah. Oh what? No Steve Miller? Is it is I'll it, take
1: Zeppelin over Miller.
2: Is it abracadabra that did it to you? Come on, dude. <laughs> Steve Miller Stas had this argument I had this argument With Nastasha Like a couple of years ago She's like What kind of hits Does Steve Miller have no, and I'm I like, didn't know am like really
1: He had like What Seven Eight
2: No he had like Like ten or twelve me- Mega hits mega. No I bet like, it's mega. seven or
1: eight I bet it's seven or eight Look Fly like it. an eagle yeah, look up how many.
2: You exactly. know, let, let, just let, spe- we'll let your spirit carry to you to the list of, of songs yeah. that they have done. It's like, <clears> throat> throat> well, the reason I was saying that, uh, you know, for Jack's benefit is because he did not write Big Old Jet Airliner, but ended up in an era when people didn't give a, a lot of money back, even though I think the person who wrote it didn't really have access to his own publishing rights or something like this, ended up uh, giving that guy a lot of money. And it was the reason that guy didn't die in poverty, was that's because right. of Steve Miller's version of Big Old Jet Airliner. Please don't carry me Too far away And uh, well, I almost did that With the Casey Kasem Rest in peace Casey Kasem You know do you like Casey Kasem? Jan- I still, I still yeah. listen to Casey
0: Kasem. Oh,
2: my God. Did, did you, okay, I'm sorry we're going far afield cooking issues, people. But, like, back in the, in the I think it was late 80s or early 90s, Casey Kasem had an outtake where uh, he was doing an introduction to someone's dog that died. And the dog's name was, I forget what it was, something like Fluffy or, or Snuggles. It was Snuggles. And uh, he was introducing you to... And like to commemorate the fact that uh that this dog snuggles had died, and he was doing his typical thing, and then he kind of flubbed the uh he flubbed the thing, and he was like. And he starts cursing and screaming at, at the engineer for having him, like, go do this downer, like... He's like, and his dog died! And, and then he starts... He has to talk about you 2 and he's like, these guys are English, and who gives it? And he's, like, going, like, uh, off on it. And then... So they have, like, uh... I forget what tune it was. like, Unforgettable Fire or something like this. And Flatland, the, the you know, kind of concept band, did a, a thing where they had somehow stolen those outtakes and just have Casey Kasem <laughs> cursing and screaming about you 2 being English, which is that. hilarious. Yeah. And And, uh... Uh, Yeah, Mm, strong concept music. Anyway, uh, back in the day. Uh, Okay. Hello, everyone. It's Mildred from Albany, New York. I'm still working through the backlog. I'm up to episode 137 right now, but I skipped ahead to get Dave's suggestion on soy sauce replacements. Thanks so much for the suggestions and for getting my last name right. I haven't had a chance to try any of the suggestions yet, but mushroom ketchup was something I'd already wanted to try due to my uh, interest in historical food. I have two follow-up questions for Dave uh, and any guests that you may have here. Like most most ketchup recipes, there is a reduce to one-half or two-thirds or more of the original volume step. Could I change that to one-third or one-quarter to keep the consistency more liquid and closer to soy sauce uh, for the marinade we're trying to recreate? Uh, You mentioned that I could ferment two. Yeah, probably. But the thing is, if you don't reduce, the two things are happening when you reduce. One, you're getting rid of uh, liquids, right? Duh. And so you're going to have a more concentrated flavor if you uh, reduce more. Second, uh, you are boiling off uh, some volatiles. So for instance, if there are volatiles in there that taste better after they've been boiled a while, they won't taste the same after they've been uh, reduced. Secondly, if you reduce enough until things start getting paste-like or start losing a lot of their liquid nature, then you can start getting – uh, effects due to higher temperatures when you're working. And so you can get more kind of roasty, toasty flavors. You just got to make sure you don't scorch. So in those cases, you'd actually be better off reducing it to its original volume, like they said, and then watering it back a little bit with water or with something else that has flavor in it to try and get that liquid back in. But you have to run a test on your particular recipe to see what tastes better. And it's easy to take a small amount of it. Um, and then, when you're at the, you know, when you're at the point where you, you know, you've reduced it how much you want to for the texture you have in the finished recipe, pull out a little bit, then continue to reduce the rest down to, um, to, you know, what the original recipe says to, right? And then take a portion of that, dilute it back to the same texture as the one you pulled out earlier, taste it, and see which one you like better, right? I mean, that's that's what I would do, um, and you can. Um, Get a feel for whether or not the reduction is actually doing anything beneficial. It might do something uh, non-beneficial. It might actually harm the flavor. Who knows? Uh, but uh, give, it a, give it a try. And then uh, <clears throat> two, you mentioned I could for- ferment the mushroom ketchup. I've never done fermenting like this. So I, uh, would I introduce yeast or something else? And should I do this before the reduction phase? Uh, what source, resources do you recommend? Mind you, I may not get a chance to do this step. The soy, uh, soy allergic best friend won't let her husband or I make kimchi in the house. So I'm not sure that this will be allowed either. That's why they make garages. Like if you have a house, like I don't I don't you know I don't have a house, I have an apartment, so like I don't really have any place that I can carry out crazy uh experiments. Uh in other words, I can't do anything that's gonna smell bad because I, I would hear about it. And my dog would probably eat it. But uh actually we could do it at a lab. You hear like styles like yeah, thanks. Uh but um i don't know uh frankly uh how uh how you know bad it would smell if you have a vacuum machine fermentation in vacuum bags is always um, is always an option. You have to make sure that your salt levels are high enough such that everything is uh safe I wouldn't add uh Yeast, And you're not really going to probably be doing yeast fermentations with this. You're going to be doing uh, mostly lactic acid uh, fermentations, mostly anaerobic stuff. So um, what I would do is first pick up a copy of Sandra Katz's book on fermentation because it's extremely uh, accessible and – that dude has fermented almost any damn thing that you can think of. And if he hasn't fermented that thing that you can think of, he has found some crazy person somewhere in the world who has fermented said thing. And he has really awesome guidelines. And so he might have guidelines already for this there. I didn't get a chance to look at the book before I, before I did. But I would definitely go there. <clears throat> if you have access to a vacuum bag, uh, you could try uh, doing it under vacuum so that it doesn't smell. Another thing you can do, by the way – is if you don't have a vacuum machine but you have a sealer, you can put it in a Ziploc bag, get rid of most of the air in the Ziploc bag uh, and you know following similar instructions to what I say in cooking issues for doing a steak in a Ziploc bag and then put that inside of another bag that you seal uh, Or alternatively, uh, put it inside of a larger Ziploc bag. The reason for that second thing and then inside of the containers, should you have an explosion uh, due to gas because there will be gas, uh, most likely there will be gas produced by the fermentation, Um, when that happens, if a bag blows, man, right? But if it blows inside of another bag that's sealed, well, then it's still contained in that outer bag, right? Right. That's the last time we did uh, sauerkraut at the lab. I did it in bags, and you couldn't smell anything until I opened it. And then I stank up the place. Yeah. All right. Anyway. Uh, thanks for your time, and keep it delicious, Mildred. Okay. Um, all right. N- last, well, last question, so we're getting close. Do we, well, do we have any good things on Twitter? Yeah, but I,
1: I don't know if we have time for that. Well,
2: well, well you, can, you can mention them, and then we'll, we'll we get We'll it until 1 o'clock today. Woo! All right. So let me answer the last one of the questions here. Martin from Sweden here. Thanks for a fantastic show. I am a ballet biolo- Biologist. Biologist. Biologist is gross, right? I'm a biologist and engineer uh, who's gotten a lot of enjoyment and learning uh, out of listening to your musings on food and cooking. I'm also one of those annoying a-hole vegetarians. Wow, calling himself an a-hole. I, I love vegetarians. I love them. I just don't happen to be one. Vegans? That's tougher. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like if you don't milk and eggs, I still like you, but I find it harder to cook for you. You know what I mean? Uh, Looking to improve my cooking techniques. Uh, As you can imagine, I'm having a lot of fun with pressure cooking, hydrocolloids, and infusions. True, a lot of those things work great onto the vegetables. My question, though, is whether there is any value in applying low-temperature cooking to mostly plant-based ingredients. Are there any cool applications, or should I simply avoid wasting money on a temperature-controlled water bath? Thanks in advance, Martin. Okay, listen, first of all, Michael Natkin, if you're out there. Let me see it dance. Uh, for those of you who uh, listen to Prince's Black Album, or if not, uh, Michael Lonek, if you are there, please uh, tweet on in some really good applications for circulators uh, and... Um and vegetables from the you know, perspective of an actual honest-to-God vegetarian. I'll say from my standpoint, it is true that most of the time that I'm cooking veg, even if I'm using vacuum techniques, which I think are very good for uh, vegetables, uh, I tend to do them uh, just in simmering water rather than you know waste a circulator bath on it because most vegetables, when you're trying to cook them, You're cooking them uh, above 85 Celsius anyway because what you're trying to do is – Um, break down the pectin and in order to break down the pectin structure and to get a vegetable to be soft you have to get uh, above 85 and there's not a lot of advantage to going much higher than 85 and once you cook something in a bag as opposed to in boiling water you don't really get mushy vegetables like you do when you're boiling in water and you overboil. so there's not a huge advantage to the control when you're doing standard vegetables like that there's a huge advantage to vacuum bagging uh, etc etc but not a huge uh, advantage to temperature Control. Now that aside, there are some kind of special things that are done with vegetables that uh, are very um, useful to have temperature control on. So, uh, <clears throat> things like heat setting, uh, like transglutaminase stuff on soy products. That's one. Uh, having uh, making kombudashi, like kombudashi, like the taste of kombudashi. Is very dependent on the temperatures that are used when you're making said dashi. And so when I make kombu dashi, I use temperature control bath because I'm trying to hit around 70 degrees Celsius when I'm using the kombu. Uh, I think higher than that, the, t- the taste is not as good, and lower than that, the taste is not as good. So that's a good application for a circulator uh, with vegetables. Um, another is um, Another is certain things like carrots can have like a, uh, like a raw taste of it, a raw crunch of a carrot, but you can get sweetness intensification in a carrot by bagging it and cooking it below its softening temperature, so like 70C, like overnight. You can get some interesting effects on vegetables like carrots that way. Uh, and I also believe that the effects of vacuum in, impregnation of flavors, that's gross, vacuum uh, in, uh, flavors into vegetables is accelerated uh, under temperature in things like and the useful thing to have a water bath is you can do it without cooking them you can cook it just below the softening temperature of uh, of the vegetable so you can cook it at like uh, you know <clears throat> like I say like 70 or something like this um, another thing you can do with fruits and vegetables if you have controlled water bath is you can do uh, enzyme related things so you can do You know, Steingarten's uh, famous mashed potatoes that were then taken up by Joel Robuchon, by Wiley Dufresne, and all these, where he does an intermediate step, an intermediate cook step where he uh, strengthens the uh, granules by. uh, I believe it's a pectin methyl esterase thing causing the you know the starch I believe that's what he's doing I believe he that he's setting the structure of it more I don't remember the exact chemistry of it but he he takes it to an intermediate step enzymatic step that sets the starch granules in place so that they don't uh, break when you're doing it <clears throat> and that's his famous kind of potato and you can also do that in french fries I don't particularly like it in french fries but you can do it and for that he used to do it on the stovetop just trying to get very accurate temperature but it's a lot easier if you have a circulator to do things like that um, so there are special techniques um there are special techniques like that that um you know are good for veg or for uh soy uh, and obviously if you eat eggs, eggs alone are a reason enough to buy a circulator so if you don't eat eggs if you, you know that's a whole a whole separate Ball of wax, but just for egg cookery alone, I think a circulator is uh, worth it. So, um, but hopefully Michael will uh, write in uh, and you know tweet in and tell us some other great applications that maybe are more widely applicable to uh, the vegetarian community. All right, in the five minutes we got left, Stas is going to go over some uh, some sweet tweets that we got in because I didn't get a chance to go over uh, last week's uh, tweets. What do we got?
1: You have a ratio we can.
2: Well, who's it from?
1: The vendor sigal Did you go over this? Make air out of liquid by adding lecithin powder?
2: Oh, the ratio? Yeah. Jeez, I don't know. It's like under – I think it's under – I always tend to add kind of like under, uh, under a percent. The trick with lecithin is that usually you want to heat a little bit. You want to get the powdered lecithin. Um, and the, the real trick with it I don't ever do it. I haven't done it since I taught it and so I forget the, the exact ratios I use but they're widely findable in like just go to Martin Leish's, uh Textures uh, thingam- thingamajig on the on the Kymos uh, thing and look up any one of the number of the lecithin uh, foam things. The real trick to doing it isn't the percentage. The real trick is how you hold your stick blender. So you take your quart container you stick your stick blender in it and the bell housing of the stick blender has to Go above the level of The liquid so you have to tilt the quart container Or tilt whatever cupper you have it in And then like at a 45 degree angle Or even a little more and Stick the blender in such that the blender The blades are going out and going back into the liquid And once you do that you're frothing and whipping The air into it and then you can blend It and pull back on it to get the foam Scoop that stuff off and go and you can keep Doing that over the course of the evening uh, As you're doing service And that's the real trick to lecithin It's not the actual ratios that's not the important Thing
1: okay, Roshan Gunsal Corale says, Dave, do you have any suggestions on blowtorch in UK for Sears Auburn's manic not sold here? Unhappy face.
2: Oh, the unhappy face that's like every star's face is an unhappy face, Uh, so she's making your face for you, but uh. We don't know for sure. I hope to go to uh, uh, England maybe when the book comes out in November. We think that Rothenberger makes a torch – I forget the name of it. We think that Rothenberger makes a torch that's a good uh, substitute. Here's what you need in a torch to have it be good for a searzol: A, it needs to have a high heat output, uh, you know, no higher than the burns matic TS-8000 uh, but no lower than the TS-4000. So that's about – uh, somewhere between uh, anything between about 7 I forget what the 4,000 is but somewhere between like 7,000 BTUs uh, per hour and like 12,000 BTUs per hour in that range it needs to have uh, it, in the tip where the tip is it needs to be the right diameter which I don't have in my head but it's not you know it's uh, somewhere near 5 eighths of an inch and the important thing is that the, that tip has to have a um, little fins of metal on the inside uh, they create a twisting motion that mixes the air so it's pre Mixed, and uh, I think those are called vortex burners or something like this. They, everyone has their own different thing they call that turbo, whatever. Needs to have that. It also uh, very key needs to have a uh, needs to be not pointed any uh, further than a, I forget whether it's thirty or forty five degrees. The burn is because otherwise you're going to be off center when you have the uh, torch on it, and it becomes an issue of falling over, and it becomes a, a safety hazard in terms of its stability if the torch head is pointed too far down. Next, it needs to have a trigger start on it so that when you press the trigger, not only does it ignite the piezo so that it ignites the flame, but it also – when you release the trigger, the uh, torch has to turn off. And that's one of the key reasons why we never bothered developing the Iwatani to its final stage because you had to turn the gas on with one knob and then press the trigger to ignite it. But when you release the trigger, the torch stayed on, and we felt that that was not good for a Searsol. That's just not safe for Searsol. Uh, and uh, – Last but not least, the piezo element should be located uh, relatively far down the gas delivery tube so that it doesn't overheat. That's another problem that Iwatani had is that the piezos would burn out after a while because the way they're designed, there is some cherry red around the uh, tip of the, of the torch tip, even in normal circumstances. And just the little bit hotter that it got when, uh, when it was on a searsol was enough to uh, ruin the piezos after a couple of hours of firing. And so, you know, anyway, so those are the main things. From the way we look at it on the interwebs, the Rothenberger, I think it's called Surefire 2 or something, I guess I forget, seems to be, uh, seems to look like it would function with those things, but I can't recommend it until I actually use one. But the next time I'm in the EU, I'm going to buy one and see whether it works. Uh, Wait, could we have, uh, we're, we're, well, anyways, we'll try to go over the, uh, Jack, we're done, right? We're done. We're done. All right, so that's it for Cooking Issues. We'll try to get more of the tweets next time. Cooking Issues.